Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 66 of the Essential X Labs. And you know, as I typed the number 66 into uh, my little script here, it uh, made me realize that had we only been covering issues of X-Men for this series, well, this would kind of be the end of this era. Right next episode, we'd be looking at Giant Size, which is pretty insane to think about, considering that we're, we're like a real, real, real long way <laughs> from Giant Size here. Um, the way that we do things here, we cover X-Men appearances, so anywhere they show up, within reason, there is like a, the wedding of the, the Wasp and Yellow Jacket in Avengers uh, one of these months, where the X-Men literally appear in one corner, uh, one quarter of one panel, and they don't even have any lines. So I don't think we'll do that one. But for the most part, we're covering, you know, anywhere they show up on panel, anywhere there's a reference to, you know, the mutants doing their thing, we're going to cover it here on the show. So with that being the case, I went through my to-do list here. Like I have a I've been trying to figure out and map the, you know, quote-unquote hidden years. You know, we're not talking about John Byrne. We're talking about just the time between, you know, X-Men 67 and 93, or I guess into 94, where uh, they come back with the new team. And I'm trying to, like, kind of map that. It's like, okay, we got, like, a couple of Spider-Man appearances, an Iron Man appearance. We have all these weird and... Uh, I can't say nebulous, since they all did come out at a certain point in time, but, you know, 30, 40 years removed from that, it's kind of hard to see where things fit. And so I have my little triptych on how we're going to get from issue 66 to giant size, and uh, that puts us at, uh, well, we're episode 66 now, and if my calculations are right, or even anywhere near right... Uh, we'll be getting the giant size X-Men at or around episode 127. So for the handful of you that didn't hit stop, um, yeah, we're like halfway there. Barely. <laughs> Barely halfway to giant size. And I mean, we're already uh, the lion's share of the way through the original 66. So we do have a lot of relatively little discussed X stuff between then and now. I mean, we have the whole Beast subplot or the, the Beast feature in Amazing uh, is it Amazing Adventures. So that'll take a little bit of time. We got Magneto rattling the cage of you know several heroes, so we'll cover that. I think even like Sunfire gets like an extended run in Iron Man. So got a lot of stuff to cover. And again, that's not counting a single issue of John Byrne's Hidden Years series. And I mean, that went, I believe, 21 issues, the John Byrne thing. But it's another one of those things where I'm kind of conflicted about uh, including it. You know, uh, a lot of the retroactive continuity is is weird, right? Because, I mean, yeah, I hate the overused term slippery slope, but in this case, it, it kind of is. Because it's like, okay, well, if we're going to include that, well, why don't we include, like, X-Men First Class or the uh, all the other myriad of retcons that have been peppered into uh, X-Men lore and history? I, I don't know if, if Hidden Years is necessarily, like, a rung above those since it was there for a, a purpose, 
Like, the entire reason for that series existing was to fill in the, these gaps here. And for the most part, it's it's pretty inoffensive stuff. Um, Burn does... Well, he does some Bernie things. Um, he tries to shoehorn some of his own creations into the, the X-Men story here. The, uh, the Marvel Lost Generation crew, uh, which was... It's one of those series that I compare, perhaps unfairly, to um, Squadron Supreme. In that it's always it's been a series I've always wanted to focus on and maybe not so much do a study of, but just be able to get a grasp on it and integrate it into my own, you know, Marvel head canon. I mean, it, it's of course part of the canon. It's just not part of mine because I don't know enough about it. Because I usually fall asleep about a third of the way in. Marvel: The Lost Generation is very much the same for me. Um, I think it was kind of purposely or purposefully uh, anachronistic for when it came out. It came out, I want to say, a 98, 99. So Marvel wasn't necessarily forward-thinking at the time, but something like The Lost Generation felt like a throwback even then, which, as, you know, the retroactive bridge between Marvel's Golden and Silver Ages, is probably kind of the point, but unfortunately... That doesn't make it all that much more interesting to read. So, yeah, they show up in Hidden Years, and actually they may have been... They may have set the precedent for Byrne doing something like Hidden Years, now that I think about it. But anyway, still trying to figure out if we're going to include Hidden Years. I mean, there's going to be a the retroactive first appearance of Storm, or the first meeting between Storm and the original five. It's I remember that being... Almost controversial back then. We didn't really have much to complain about back then, so uh, we, we took whatever we could and ran with it. But, um, I don't know. If anybody has any thoughts on whether or not we should include uh, the Hidden Years series in the, you know, the quote-unquote Hidden Years of this show, let me know. And if anybody out there can help me trip ticket, because I'm trying to... What I started to do, I have my list, like I mentioned here, where I have all the various uh, disparate appearances of the X-Men between... It's, you know, 1970-whatever and 1970-whatever. And I'm trying to slot these issues of Hidden Years in. Like, where they're not gonna... Where it won't be redundant, and it won't also won't contradict what we're covering in the other books, you know? It's just, uh... It's not terribly easy. And, I mean, Byrne is usually really good about making things fit to a point. But, um... I don't know, that might have just been... You know, 15 or 20 too many balls he was trying to juggle at once. But, uh, hey, you know, we'll, we'll play it by ear, and we will uh, hopefully come to some sort of a decision. Um, I mean, we still have, we still have what, uh, 14, 15, issue, 15 issues of this run before we got to worry about that. So uh, at the rate I'm going, that'll be, you know, three Christmases from now. So we will, uh, we will see when we get there. But, uh, of course, if anybody has any thoughts or suggestions or ideas, please... Please let me know. But um, how about we get into today's issue here? We got a, we had a uh, rollicking, senses-shattering cliffhanger last issue with Magneto showing up alive at the very end of the uh, of the story or of our feature presentation. So let's see where all the pieces lie here in X Men number fifty one, which had a December nineteen sixty eight cover date. The story is called "The Devil Had a Daughter," written by Arnold Drake with pencils by. Well, he's credited as, do we have to tell you? But it is Jim Steranko. And to answer their question, do they have to tell us? Yeah, you kind of do. 
I, I mean, I've talked about Starenko. Um, the uh, the covers are nice. The interiors are a little awkward. Anyway, inks, John Tartaglioni, and I, I think, of course, you know, of the comic scholars that we are, we can just blame all of that on Tartaglioni. Uh, letters, Sam Rosen, edit Stan Lee, cover price, 12 cents. Now, let's start with our cover here. Um, I haven't the foggiest idea what this cover's all about. If you're familiar with this cover, and I wouldn't blame you if you weren't, it's like a red-bearded Viking character on the cover, um, and the X-Men are, like, scattered around. Like, he's looming large here. It's like his big face, his big hand, and the X-Men are kind of just scattered around him. I haven't the foggiest, but if I had to guess, I would assume that maybe all Starenko was told when he was going in to create this cover was that, hey, there's going to be a character called Eric the Red showing up in this issue. And then without any sort of reference material or anything, he drew this giant red-bearded Viking-like character. I mean, that is, of course, unless I'm being even denser than usual. And the reason for this unknown bad guy on the cover is instantly relevant to everybody else. I mean, whatever the case may be, it is a very nice-looking cover, so I will give it that. Now we crack this sucker open, and we get a very, very Starenko title page, which is quite striking here. It's very, very cool. Uh, the Mesmero machinery has the title built into it. It's, uh, I mean, if you're familiar with Starenko's um, title, uh, title pages on Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., this is going to be, this is like right out of that playbook, and it looks really, really cool. So, the title's in the machinery. Uh, Magneto either dramatically poses or has his first big stretch of the day stood before it. And he is surrounded by the X-Men and Lorna Dane. Magneto confirms that Lorna is, in fact, his daughter, and offers her the opportunity to rule over humanity at his side. Now, the X-Men think it's all but official that Lorna's turning heel. All except Iceman, of course, who's clearly quite smitten with this woman he'd met, like, three hours ago. And I suppose if we're talking current year Iceman, he's not only quite smitten, but he's also rather confused. Now Bobby lashes out at Magneto, verbally, kind of like a kid throwing a temper tantrum. Thankfully for him, the X-Men are ready to hold him back when it looks like he's about to lunge at our baddie. Iceman appeals to Cyclops that they've got to do something to help Lorna. Scott, despite acting like he's not going to do anything, punches Magneto in the face. Like, he's holding Iceman back. He's like, no, we gotta calm down. Then he punches Magneto in the face. It's a very confusing cluster of panels. Um, and it's getting more and more clear to me, to, to, at least to me, that Arnold Drake is not comfortable with the Marvel method. And also feels as though he's gotta cram as much dialogue as possible into each panel. I mean, I mentioned that I bought a, uh, a, a small tablet to read these on, and... Um, because my eyes have been giving me problems for several months now. And usually I don't have to pinch in on the panels to read them. But of uh, the past couple, I've had to pinch in because there's just so many damn words. And of course, that's not to say there's anything wrong with using a lot of words. But, and I mean, and look who's complaining here, me. Um, but, you know, sometimes it feels like Drake is overcompensating for um, for the Marvel method here. He's trying to, oh, maybe he's trying to earn his paycheck here, in a way. So yeah, Psych punches Magneto, knocking his limbs all akimbo here. Uh, and uh, I mean, there's a panel here where Magneto actually looks like a G.I. Joe whose rubber band had just snapped. It's very bizarre. 
Uh, Lorna's here. She looks on like she's got like a killer headache. Uh, Bobby swoops in and scoops her up. And it looks like a, well, she might just be equally smitten with our youngest X-Man. Mesmero and the Demi-Men are called in by our big bad. And, uh, well, it's time for yet another nigh-on endless fight scene. And we get a weird page of some Demis trying to put a lead helmet on Cyclops' head, which lasts all of a single panel before Scott blasts his way out of it. So it makes you wonder why we spend so many panels trying to put this damn thing on his head. Uh, Iceman, he exhausts himself, icing up a gaggle at Demis. Magneto sicks some shrapnel at our heroes, and it looks more like, um... It looks less like shrapnel and more like they're being assaulted by a spilled tub of Lego pieces. Now, this appears to be just about enough to get our X-Men to realize that discretion might be the better part of valor, and so they look to exit stage left. The Demi-Men join hands, making a human chain. Cyclops punches one of them. That is his mutant power this uh, this month. Unluckily for him, however, um, this one has the uh, this one Demi he punches has the very Drakean mutant power of negative energy. And so Slim's punch is turned against him. No matter, though, because Scott decides to just blast the roof, causing it to cave in on top of Magneto, and our heroes use this distraction in order to escape. Bobby, of course, is torn. You know, he, he wants to... You know, he's, he's got an interest in self-preservation, but at the same time, he doesn't want to leave Lorna behind. During the escape, because we got a few more pages to fill, uh, the X-Men follow a path that leads directly to a dead end. Now, this just allows Beast to use his head as a battering ram in order to cool Aid Man their way out of there. On the other side of the wall, as luck would have it, the Demi-Men have left a jet, with keys still in the ignition, and so our heroes make like trees. Back inside the compound, Lorna has freed her father from the rubble, and Magneto mentions that his legs have been paralyzed. And I wonder if this is supposed to evoke thoughts of Xavier? Maybe? Maybe not? I don't know. Though, in fairness, Xavier still gets mentioned at least once a page, especially if that page has, like, any thought balloons on it, because their minds are always with the professor. We hop back to the bachelor pad in San Francisco, where our heroes are back in their civvies. Cyclops decides to pull Iceman off the mission. He claims that he's lost all his objectivity, his lusty eyes for Lorna have clouded his judgment, and are a real conflict of interest. Now, Bobby completely flips out here, equating what Scott said to having called him a traitor to the X-Men. Which is kind of a reach. Scott didn't say anything like that. He's not worried about Bobby leaving the X-Men to join up with Magneto and Lorna. He's just worried that Bobby might hesitate rather than act if, uh, you know, he's in a certain situation, which, hey, valid, right? Scott and Bobby very nearly come to blows over this. Hank and Warren get in there to hold them both back. Gene has stood in the corner waxing on about Professor Xavier some more. Bobby decides to quit the crew, and he stomps out of his own apartment. This takes us to our cliffhanger, and uh, we are in the desert outside the mutant city when Eric the Red appears. Now, he looks like he's in great pain, agony even, and he's firing flames or beams out of his fingers that'll all make more sense later, and he is here to make threats in Magneto's general direction. That's where we leave it. But of course, we are in the age of backups, so we're not done just yet. Let's hop right into it here. The Lore of the Beast Nappers, written by Arnold Drake, written by, I'm um, sorry, pencils by Warner Roth, inks by John Tataglioni, letters Herb Cooper, edits Stan Lee. And uh, we pick up pretty much where we left off here. Uh, Hank, he's a high school football standout, a star even, 
and uh, his exploits are being keenly observed by El Conquistador and Chico. Now, they plan to capture the beast and use him to complete their plan of world domination. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Hank wins a uh, football game, and he's hoisted up on the shoulders of his teammates. He then climbs the scoreboard for no particular reason. I I don't have the issue in front of me, but I think he takes his shoes off before he does it as well. So, I mean, that's, that's just what people do. El Conquistador assembles his army of conquistadoritos, I guess, or... Conquistadores Pequeños, whatever. They're all wearing the same goofy get-ups here. The next several pages have the baddies trying to kidnap Hank. And that that's really it. Uh, after a bit of a struggle and a blast with a stun stick, they're finally able to procure him. Later, Iceman arrives at Hank's house, having been sent there by Xavier after Cerebro went up-hinging, and he finds the home has been deserted. Not only that, he sees signs of a nasty struggle. He heads back to the mansion to report in. It's worth noting, Angel is here and already on the team. He's already been recruited before Hank, even though we haven't seen that story just yet. We do get an editorial footnote threatening us that Warren's origin is still coming. We close out with El Conquistador stood before a hogtied Hank. On the other side of a window, we see Norton and... Let me see if I can get through this name. Edna McCoy. I couldn't say Edna McCoy. This is like my eighth take trying to say Edna McCoy. Um, so we see Norton and Edna McCoy. They've also been kidnapped by the Conquistador. El Con tells Hank to join his cause or his parents will get it. And so this backup feature must continue, whether we want it to or not. Um, really not much to say about the backup. It's... Uh, more of the same here. We're very, very slowly. I mean, this is like decompression before decompression here, trying to get Hank. And I mean, it's not like there's not a lot of action going on here. We're not skipping time because we are jumping ahead quite a bit every time out. But I don't know about you all, but uh, boy, it's dragging for me. And, and I mean, I've talked a little bit last time about how the backups kind of ruined my experience reading Bronze Age action comics. And yeah, having <laughs> a very similar sensation here um as for our feature story it was fine it was a fine story here um kind of formulaic but they kind of all are at this point uh the acrimony between iceman and cyclops felt a bit sudden a bit forced and i mean this isn't the first time we've seen you know a little rift or a schism in among the original five here we did have that subplot where uh Warren and Scott, if I'm remembering right, uh, they had, uh, you know, they both had eyes for Gene. And we had, like, that one scene where Cyclops accidentally on purpose zapped Warren (laughs) with his optic blasts here. And while I'd never suggest that those scenes were subtle in any way, they, I don't know, it, it felt more organic or natural than this. This was just a very, okay, we need to have a reason for Bobby not to be there next time, so do this. And... Just such an explosive and out-of-nowhere team-threatening argument, which is not going to amount to a whole lot. Uh, next issue is going to be a weird one. We're going to ask a lot of questions about exactly why some of the things that happened in it were even part of the plan to begin with, because uh, it, it's a weird one. And I'm, I, you know, when it's Eric the Red in the Silver Age, I think a lot of uh, a lot of we seasoned X fans already know. You know what the whole, you know what the whole gimme of that is. But uh, in reading it back again, it's um, 
it's even sillier than we thought, or at least sillier than I thought, but I will get there next time. But for now, let's uh, flip the switch and hop into the back matter of the episode here. The mutant mailbox, still without replies, so this is uh, going to be just as awkward as the last couple. But um, especially since some of these are, I mean, they're all wanting Stan to reply here, and some of them are, like, addressing Stan specifically. And for some reason they get published, even without a reply, which... I don't know. Let's kick it all off with uh, Lynn in Texas, who uh, is pointing out that Stan Dunn goofed. Now, this is a letter about um, some wisdom Stan dropped on us a couple of issues ago, or a handful of issues ago, which, when he said it, I think we all kind of knew it was going to get replies. But back then, we thought that Stan was still going to be answering the letters. So, um, I don't know if if we were looking forward to those replies, or... I can only speak for myself, of course, but um, I wanted to hear or read the discourse about this hot take that Stan dropped. Now, this is a letter about Stan's suggestion in the letters page from X-Men number 47, wherein he suggests that characters like Daredevil, Spider-Man, and the Fantastic Four are, in fact, mutants. And, I mean, he must have known this would get replies, right? Now, Lynn, in Texas, explains the difference between these Marvel heroes and Jack of Diamonds, who inspired the argument to begin with. Now, Jack, if you remember, would convert radioactivity into diamonds. As such, it stands to reason that his mutant powers allow him to be exposed to radiation without being killed by it. Lynn posits that Spidey and Daredevil don't have any such luxury, and points out that this fact was actually just recently demonstrated in Daredevil number 43. Also says that the Fantastic Four's deal was cosmic and suggests that that's a whole nother kettle of fish. So since Stan has no reply, what say you, gentle listener? Do you think Spidey and Daredevil are actually mutants? What about the Fantastic Four? Has Stan lost the plot, or was he just fishing for uh, for letters to be written into the, uh, the flailing mutant mailbox? What say you? You tell me. Let's hop over to Tad in California. Now, Tad is sick of seeing Iceman's powers being depicted as him just having an icy coating. He compares Bobby to Johnny Storm and suggests that when flamed on, Johnny becomes pure fire. As such, when iced up, Bobby should be pure ice. I didn't even realize this was a problem we had. Hmm. Now, Tad also takes issue with Johnny's ability to fly, calling it... Stop me if you heard this one. Um, Says it's unrealistic. Oof. He goes so far as to ask Stan to light a match and toss it into the air to see if it flies. <laughs> sure. Uh, he suggests that maybe Johnny is gas-based, not fire-based. Uh, also suggests that Stan refamiliarize himself with Marvel's back catalog so he can get his own facts straight. Well, to uh, quote Batman when he saw Nightwing being nice to Jason Todd, Thanks, Dick. Uh, speaking of which, we got Rich in New York. Now, he says, before X-Men number 49, uh, this is the reunion issue that introduced Mesmero and Lorna Dane, before that, X-Men was Marvel's worst comic book. He wants the X-Men to have longer stories. So so it's the worst comic book, but it ain't long enough, too. He says 15 pages a month just isn't enough of the worst comic book Marvel puts out. Uh, Loves the Storanko covers and considers them worth the dime and two pennies spent alone. You know, I never expected to get so much mileage out of the, you know, the food is terrible and the portions are too small joke, but, uh, there's another one. Next up, we got Celeste in San Jose. 
Now, Celeste was ready to dismiss X-Men number 48 as an issue of Millie the Model. Uh, if you recall, it did open with an extended scene of Jean posing for pictures. But they came around quick. Loves this new format of solo-ish X-Men stories, which by now is the old format. Sorry about that. Uh, Celeste hopes that it's revealed that Bobby and Hank are living in San Francisco rather than Los Angeles. So, uh, well, you got your wish there, Golden Stater. Next up, Larry in Tulsa. Uh, Larry waxes on for a painfully long run-on sentence about all things Marvel. Basically tickling Stan's taint in order to get his letter printed. And if you were to read this letter in a certain cadence, it probably could be a rap. Or maybe beat poetry. It's, it's pretty cringy stuff. Uh, the X-Men, uh, they do get mentioned once, which I guess makes them relevant to this letters page. And by mentioned, I mean mentioned. Like, just their names are listed here. So, maybe one of those cases where the mutant mailbox was the only letter column this month with the room to fit it, so it went here? I really couldn't say. Next up, we got Call and Indy. He congratulates Stan and the gang for updating and maturing the X-Men. Feels like the uh, issue 46 is the end of the X-Men was, in reality, a new beginning. Which, uh, well, every new beginning, right? Next up, Christine in Chicago with her second letter. Now, their last missive appeared way back in X-Men number 22. Now, this is a letter about the Cyclops Marvel Girl ditty in X-Men number 48. Says it started strong. Really likes seeing Jean posing in bathing suits. Says she's quite beautiful but hopes Marvel can control themselves before making her the second coming of Millie the Model. Wants to know how uh, Cyclops got his job as a radio newsman without experience, and I did ask that question as well. And wants more Scott on Jean romance. Not only that, wants their romance to be more out in the open, so not just, uh, you know, lustful thoughts between them, but actually have them out there dating and being a couple. Thankfully, Christine does not threaten to burn Marvel's offices down if they do not go in that direction. Last but not least, we got Don in Birmingham. Now Don, he's a little ticked off that Quasimodo was brought back from the dead. He claims that Stan himself said in the letter column from Captain America number 105 that, quote, when we kill off a villain, he he steves, no, he stays dead, nuff said. To which I have to say, ha. So, Asketh Don, why in the world was Quasi brought back then? Well, Don, welcome to the future of comic book storytelling. You are gonna hate it. Uh, he would like them to change the title of the book to X-Men and Girl, which, haha, haha, ha, ha, I guess. Tip the veal, try the waitress, he's, he'll be here all night. Um, he's also happy to report that the X-Men is, at this point, almost readable, which is stone cold. Well, those are our letters for today. Um, let's hop into the bullpen bulletins while we're while we're on a roll here. The bullpen bulletin subtitle is <clears throat> A Titanic Treasure Trove of Traumatically Tempting Tidbits Tastefully Tossed Together to Tease and Tantalize Thee. I got through that on the first try. And I'm saying that a lot, too. I'm, I'm getting through these on the first try. It's like I, I'm almost not the absolute worst in the world at this. Let's hop into our items here. Item number one. Rascally Roy Thomas just got married. Roy and his first wife, Jean Maxey, actually eloped after a comic convention in St. Louis. Stan jokes here that all the women in Roy's books are about to be named Jean. Item! With Herb Trimpey's pencils, the Hulk has never been better. Stan says they're selling more copies than they can even print, which, I mean, why would Stan lie about that, right? Item! 
Jack Kirby's son Neil just announced his engagement, so Stan and Kia congratulates Jack and Roz. Item. John Romita did the cover painting for Spectacular Spider-Man number 2 all by himself. Item. Our favorite kind of item. This is a bullpen listomania of pros who Stan just happens to see hanging out around his office. And they include Arnold Drake, Archie Goodwin, Roy Thomas, Gary Friedrich, and Ernie Hart. And it's like, they're really, really hurting for content this time out, because like, this listomania is like, it really is like Romper Room. It's like, I see Arnold Drake pouring himself a cup of coffee, and he put two scoops of sugar. It's like, dude, just slap a picture of Spider-Man on the page or something to let us all get on with our damn day. Speaking of which, let's get on to some Marvel moves. The bullpen is making waves here. We got Gene Colan and Tom Palmer on Doctor Strange, Jim Steranko on X-Men, and Frank Springer on S.H.I.E.L.D. Item, John Buscema is working his butt off. He's working on Silver Surfer, The Avengers, and Submariner. Item, it's, an, it's another list of names that Stan sees out his window. Uh, actually, in writing this, he lists a bunch of names, and then he laments the fact that he's run out of room to discuss their exploits. So he mentions Don Heck, Warner Roth, George Tuska, Dick Ayers, Howard Purcell, Larry Lieber, and Dan Adkins. He says he can't talk about what they're doing, but he assures us that they're doing some stuff. Items out of the way, let's hop into Stan's soapbox. Now Stan says, the next time someone makes fun of you for reading comic books, inform them that it's just another form of communication and entertainment no less valid than television and movies. Which, I mean, hell, try telling that to the people writing comics these days. <clears throat> Mighty Marvel Checklist Fantastic Four number 82 Because you haven't had a good night's sleep in a while The Return of the Inhumans Spider-Man number 68 Features a riot on campus Marvel Superheroes number 18 Welcome to the world Guardians of the Galaxy Avengers number 59 The Wasp's new suitor And or the Avengers new nemesis The Yellow Jacket And uh, they'll be getting married in the very next issue, the X-Men appear in a corner of a panel there. We'll, I'll probably mention that next time. Daredevil number 47, The Secret of Karen Page. And no, not that secret. Or the other one. Or the other one. Mighty Thor 159 asks the question, Where was Thor before Don Blake found the hammer? Captain America number 109 features Captain America's origin again, because it's been nine issues. Incredible Hulk 111 has our man trapped in space. Iron Man number 9 versus the Hulk, who I guess is no longer trapped in space? Or maybe Tony is also trapped in space with the Hulk? I don't know. Submariner number 9 features the spell of the serpent. Captain Marvel number 9 promises to be a gasser, featuring two men uh, twin menaces. Not two, well, I guess there would be two, but twin menaces. Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. number 8, has our man exploring the Caves of Hercules. Doctor Strange, 176, has the Sons of Satanish, still. Sergeant Fury, number 61, let me see if I can say this right here. Happy Sam is taken hostage. I kept saying Sappy Ham, which, uh, I mean, could be a whole different character, I guess. Captain Savage, number 9. <laughs> it's a new issue, so please buy it. That's about it. Marvel Tales, number 18, reprints. Millie the Model, number 166. Millie getting some mention on the bullpen page here, and Stan says, buy it for your sister. We got Mighty Marvel Weston, number 2, which is frontier action featuring kids aplenty. Rawhide, Kid Cult, and the Two-Gun Kid. 
I'm not sure if this is reprints. Maybe it is. I don't know. I think they mentioned in a bullpen bullet we covered like a hundred years ago that they were going to start repackaging some of these old westerns for a um, then current year audience. Maybe this is that. Maybe it's not. Um, we got some books that are still on sale here. We got the spectacular Spider-Man number two, which they 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 want you to buy it. Just buy the damn thing, please. Uh, Silver Surfer number three, not brand. Ugh, number eleven. Collector's Item Classics, number 18, and Rawhide Kid, number 67. Rawhide Kid gets a mention on the bullpen page. That's a first. Anyway, the story within is called The Hostage of the Hungry Hills. Well, that is our issue, and I think uh, I think that'll do it for today. Uh, I don't know if I should apologize for that extended housekeeping uh, bit at the beginning of the episode. Uh, hopefully, uh, I don't know, maybe you got something out of my ridiculous thought processes and... Um, the struggles I have as a uh, internet content creator, you know, these these huge executive decisions I'm forced to make all by my lonesome here that uh, keep me awake at night. That was probably just me in, indulging myself and hearing my own voice and uh, vamping for the, uh, you know, sake of vamping, I suppose. But um, if you're still with me, thank you all so, so much. Um, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, if you have any, uh, like I said earlier, if you have any suggestions about how to handle... Things like the hidden years, uh, things like, uh, I don't even know if I want to mess with things like First Class or uh, Professor Xavier and the X-Men or stuff like that. That was all going to be like point one material over on the Patreon when I still, you know, did that. And the Patreon, it's still open. It's just been on pause for many, many months now. So I, I do want to thank people for sticking on there with me here, putting up with the lack of anything going down there. Uh, but I assure you, I've been pausing it every single month. I don't want anybody... I don't want anybody to pay me for anything, <laughs> especially if I'm not giving anything. I mean, I already have enough Catholic guilt, and uh, both times I've uh, started up a Patreon, something very bad happened afterwards. Uh, I don't, you know, it's I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious, I guess. But um, again, thank you for uh, sticking with me. And uh, if you have been charged, please let me know, because I have been pausing it every single month. But um. Yeah, stuff like Hidden Years and whatnot, we're going to wind up on the point one in a million and a half years when we finally got to that era, but uh, who knows? You tell me. You tell me what you want. Maybe you want me to cover them. Maybe you want just uh, like a supplemental capsule-style review of the Hidden Year stuff to where we can best approximate it fitting in in those literal Hidden Years. You, you let me know. Uh, the world is our oyster, I suppose. There are, as I'm finding out, no rules to this, which... Uh, it's a scary way for me. But um, anyway, I'd love to hear from you. If you want to reach out, you can find me all the same places here. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com, Ace Comics on Twitter, Xlaps on Facebook, uh, WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. But I think it's time for me to stop talking. So I will thank you all one more time for spending some of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>